0: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and starship sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, dear listeners. Wherever you are, wherever you are listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 153, the episode that marks our third anniversary. Myself, Nicholas Eaton clark our editor, Gary Dowell, and our sound engineer, Mark Zanfaldino, welcome you to this historic episode. Gary, Mark, and I can hardly believe that we're here. And it's all thanks to the wonderful leadership of Tony C. Smith, the captain of our District of Wonders ship. Our thanks go also to you, dear listeners, who have supported us both with your time and your money over these last three years. We're looking forward to another three, and then another, and then another. Three years and hundreds of stories brought to you in audio form, courtesy of hundreds of talented authors and narrators. While we're speaking of narrators, the Triple F could use a few more, specifically narrators fluent in languages or blessed with accents other than the English-related. If you are at all interested, please contact us at farfetchedfables at gmail.com. Speaking of talented authors, we celebrate this milestone episode with a wonderful tale by a grand master in the field of speculative fiction. Our featured story for this week is The Sorcerer's Apprentice by none other than Robert Silverberg. Robert has been a professional writer since 1955 and is widely known for his science fiction and fantasy stories. He is a winner of four Hugo Awards, six Nebula Awards, and three Locus Awards. He was named to the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 1999 and was designated as a Grand Master by the Science Fiction Writers of America in 2004. His books and stories have been translated into no less than 40 languages. Among his best-known titles are Nightwings, Dying Inside, The Book of Skulls, and the three volumes of the Majipur Cycle, Lord Valentine's Castle, Majipur Chronicles, and Valentine Pontifex. His collected short stories, covering nearly 60 years of work, have been published in nine volumes by Subterranean Press. His most recent book is Tales of Majipur, a collection of stories set on the world made famous in Lord Valentine's Castle. He and his wife Karen, and an assorted population of cats, live in the San Francisco Bay area, in a sprawling house surrounded by exotic plants. He can be found online at the quasi-official Robert Silverberg website, a link to which is in our show notes. His story is narrated for us by Anthony Babington, a voice in the Internet's head, who looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. Having escaped from the sinister forces of Texas, he has retreated to an ingeniously disguised bunker in a secure, undisclosed location in Burnsville, Minnesota. His life goal is to someday annoy Norm Sherman into letting him voice a part on Escape Pod, but until then, he'd be happy to voice a project for you. Yes, you in the checked shirt. You can contact him on Google Plus or via Twitter. And now, The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Robert Silverberg.
1: Ganon Thidrich was nearing the age of thirty and had come to Tregoyne to study the art of sorcery, a profession for which he thought he had some aptitude. After failing at several for which he had none, he was a native of the free city of Stee, that splendid metropolis on the slopes of Castle Mount. And at the suggestion of his father, a wealthy merchant of that great city, he had gone first into meat jobbing, and then, through the good offices of an uncle from Dundlemere, he had become a dealer in used leather. In neither of these occupations had he distinguished himself, nor in the desultory projects he had undertaken afterward. But from childhood on, he had pursued sorcery in an amateur way, first as a boyish hobby, and then as a young man's consolation for shortcomings in most of the other aspects of his life. Helping out friends even unluckier than he with an uplifting spell or two, conjuring at parties, earning a little by reading palms in the marketplace, and at last, eager to attain more arcane skills, He had taken himself to Tregoyne, the capital city of sorcerers, hoping to apprentice himself to some master in that craft. Tregoyne came as a jolt after Stee. That great city, spreading out magnificently along both banks of the river of the same name, was distinguished for its huge parks and game preserves, its palatial homes, its towering riverfront buildings of reflective gray-pink marble. But Tregoyne, far up in the north beyond the grim Valmambra desert, was a closed, claustrophobic place dark and unwelcoming, where Ganon Thidrich found himself confronted with a bewildering tangle of winding medieval streets lined by ancient mustard-colored buildings with blank facades and gabled roofs. It was winter here. The trees were leafless and the air was cold. That was a new thing for him, winter. Stee was seasonless, favored all year round by the eternal springtime of Castle Mount. The sharp-edged air was harsh with the odors of stale cooking oil and unfamiliar spices. The faces of the few people he encountered in the streets, just within the gate, were guarded and unfriendly. He spent his first night there in a public dormitory for wayfarers, where in a smoky, dimly lit room he slept, very poorly, on a tick-infested straw mat among fifty other foot-sore travellers. In the morning, waiting on a long line for the chance to rinse his face in icy water, he passed the time by scanning the announcements on a bulletin board in the corridor, and saw this. Apprentice Wanted. Fifth-level adept offers instruction for serious student, plus lodging. Ten crowns per week for room and lessons, some household work required, and assistance in professional tasks. Apply to V. Halibant, 7 Capelago Boulevard, West Trigoyne. That sounded promising. Gannon Thidrich gathered up his suitcases and hired a street carter to take him to West Trigoyne. The carter made a sour face when Gannon Thidrich gave him the address, but it was illegal to refuse a fare, and off they went. Soon, Ganon Thidridge understood the sourness, for West Tregoyne appeared to be very far from the center of the city—a suburb, in fact, perhaps even a slum—where the buildings were so old and dilapidated they might as well have dated from Lord Stiemuth's time, and a cold, dusty wind blew constantly down out of a row of low, jagged hills. Number 7, Gapelago Boulevard, proved to be a ramshackle, lopsided structure three asymmetrical floors behind a weather-beaten stone wall that showed sad signs of flaking and spalling. The ground floor housed what seemed to be a tavern, not open at this early hour. The floor above it greeted him with a padlocked door. Gannon Thidrich struggled upward with his luggage, and at the topmost landing was met with folded arms and hostile glance by a tall, slender woman of about his own age, auburn-haired, dusky-skinned, with keen, unwavering eyes and thin, savage-looking lips. Evidently, she had heard his bumpings and thumpings on the staircase, and had come out to inspect the source of the commotion. He was struck at once, despite her chilly and even forbidding aspect, with the despairing realization that he found her immensely attractive. I'm looking for V. Halibant, Gannon Thidrich said, gasping a little for breath after his climb. I am V. Halibant. That stunned him. Sorcery was not a trade commonly practiced by women, though evidently there were some who did go in for it. The apprenticeship, he managed to say. Still available, she said. Give me these. In the manner of a porter she swiftly separated his bags from his grasp, hefting them as though they were weightless, and let him inside. Her chambers were dark, cheerless, cluttered, and untidy. The small room to the left of the entrance was jammed with the apparatus and paraphernalia of the professional sorcerer astrolabes and amatopillas, alembics and crucibles, hexaphores, ambivials, rohillas and veralistias, an armillary sphere, beakers and retorts, trays and metal boxes holding blue powders and pink ointments and strange seeds, a collection of flasks containing mysterious colored fluids, and much more that he was unable to identify. A second room adjacent to it held an overflowing bookcase, a couple of chairs, and a sway-backed couch. No doubt this was the room for consultations. There were cobwebs on the window, and he saw dust beneath the couch, and even a few sand roaches, those ubiquitous, nasty, scuttering insects that infested the parched Valmambra and all territories adjacent to it, were roaming about. Down the hallway lay a small, dirty kitchen, a tiny room with a toilet and a tub in it, a storeroom piled high with more books and pamphlets, and beyond it the closed door of what he supposed, correctly as it turned out, to be her own bedroom. What he did not see was any space for a lodger. I can offer one hour of formal instruction per day, every day of the week, plus access to my library for your independent studies, and two hours a week of discussion growing out of your own investigations, V. Halibant announced. All of this in the morning. I will require you to be out of here for three hours every afternoon, because I have private pupils during that time. How you spend those hours is unimportant to me, except that I will need you to go to the marketplace for me two or three times a week, and you may as well do that then. You'll also do sweeping, washing, and other household chores, which, as you have surely seen, I have very little time to deal with. And you'll help me in my own work as required, assuming, of course, your skills are up to it. Is this agreeable to you? Absolutely," said Canon Thidrich. He was lost in admiration of her lustrous auburn hair, her finest feature, which fell in a sparkling cascade to her shoulders. The fee is payable four weeks in advance. If you leave after the first week, the rest is refundable. Afterwards, not. He knew already that he was not going to leave. She held out her hand. Sixty crowns, that will be. The notice I saw said it was ten crowns a week. Her eyes were steely. You must have seen an old notice. I raised my rates last year. He would not quibble. As he gave her the money, he said, "'And where am I going to be sleeping?' "'She gestured indifferently toward a rolled-up mat in a corner of the room "'that contained all the apparatus. "'He realized that that was going to be his bed. "'You decide that. "'The laboratory, the study, the hallway even, wherever you like. "'His own choice would have been her bedroom with her, "'but he was wise enough not to say that even as a joke. "'He told her that he would sleep in the study, "'as she seemed to call the room with the couch and books.' While he was unrolling the mat, she asked him what level of instruction in the arts he had attained, and he replied that he was a self-educated sorcerer, strictly a novice, but with some apparent gift for the craft. She appeared untroubled by that. Perhaps all that mattered to her was the rent. She would instruct anyone, even a novice, so long as he paid on time. "'Oh,' he said as she turned away, "'I'm Gannon Thidrich, and your name is—' "'Halibant,' she said, disappearing down the hallway.' Her first name, he discovered from a diploma in the study, was Vinala, a lovely name to him, but if she wanted to be called Halibant, then Halibant was what he would call her. He would not take the risk of offending her in any way, not only because he very much craved the instruction that she could offer him, but also because of the troublesome and unwanted physical attraction that she held for him. He could see right away that that attraction was in no way reciprocated. That disappointed him. One of the few areas of his life where he had generally met with success was in his dealings with women. But he knew that romance was inappropriate anyway between master and pupil, even if they were of differing sexes. Nor had he asked for it. It had simply smitten him at first glance, as had happened to him two or three times earlier in his life. Usually such smitings led only to messy difficulties, he had discovered. He wanted no such messes here. If these feelings of his for Halibant became a problem, he supposed, he could go into town and purchase whatever the opposite of a love charm was called. If they sold love charms here, and he had no doubt that they did, surely they would sell antidotes for love as well. But he wanted to remain here, and so he would do whatever she asked of him, call her by whatever name she requested, and so forth, obeying her in all things. In this ugly, unfriendly city she was the one spot of brightness and warmth for him. "'regardless of the complexities of the situation. "'But his desire for her did not cause any problems, at first, "'aside from the effort he had to make in suppressing it, "'which was considerable, but not insuperable. "'On the first day he unpacked, "'spent the afternoon wandering around the unprepossessing streets of West Tregoyne "'during the stipulated three hours for her other pupils, "'and, finding himself alone in the flat when he returned, he occupied himself by browsing through her extensive collection of texts on sorcery until dinnertime. Haliband had told him that he was free to use her little kitchen, and so he had purchased a few things at the corner market to cook for himself. Afterward, suddenly very weary, he lay down on his mat in the study and fell instantly asleep. He was vaguely aware, sometime later in the night, that she had come home and gone down the hallway to her room. In the morning, after they had eaten, she began his course of instruction in the mantic arts. Briskly she interrogated him about the existing state of his knowledge. He explained what he could and could not do, a little surprised himself at how much he knew, and she did not seem displeased by it either. Still, after ten minutes or so, she interrupted him, and set about an introductory course of the most elementary sort, beginning with a lecture on the three classes of demons, the untamable Valisteroy, "'the frequently useful Calisteroi, "'and the dangerous and unpredictable Ergolisteroi. "'Gannon Thidrich had long ago encompassed the knowledge of the invisible beings, "'or at least thought he had, "'but he listened intently, taking copious notes, "'exactly as though all this were new to him, "'and after a while he discovered that what he thought he knew was shallow indeed, "'that it touched only on the superficialities. "'Each day's lesson was different.' One day it dealt with amulets and talismans. Another with mechanical conjuring devices. Another with herbal remedies and the making of potions. Another with interpreting the movements of the stars and how to cast spells. His mind was a whirl with new knowledge. Ganon Thidrich drank it all in greedily, memorizing dozens of spells a day. To establish a relationship with the demon Gintis. Limea Abrasax Jabe Jarbatha Kramne to invoke protection against aquatic creatures. Loma Zath Ioin Acthes balamayon Request for Knowledge of the Red Lamp Imantu Iantu Ancomac After each hour-long lesson, he flung himself into avid exploration of her library, searching out additional aspects of what he had just been taught. He saw, ruefully, that while he had wasted his life in foolish and abortive business ventures, She had devoted her years, approximately the same number as his, to a profound and comprehensive study of the magical arts, and he admired the breadth and depth of her mastery. On the other hand, Halibant did not have much in the way of a paying practice, skillful though she obviously was. During Ganon Thidrich's first week with her, she gave just two brief consultations, one to a shopkeeper who had been put under a gaius by a commercial rival, one to an elderly man who lusted after a youthful niece and wished to be cured of his obsession. He assisted her in both instances, fetching equipment from the laboratory as requested. The fees she received in both cases, he noticed, were minimal, a mere handful of coppers. No wonder she lived in such dismal quarters and was reduced to taking in private pupils like himself and whoever it was who came to see her in the afternoons while he was away. It puzzled him that she remained here in Tregoyne, where sorcerers swarmed everywhere by the hundreds or the thousands, and competition had to be brutal, when she plainly would be much better off setting up in business for herself in one of the prosperous cities of the Mount, where a handsome young sorceress with skill in the art would quickly build a large clientele. It was an exciting time for him. Ganon Thidrich felt his mind opening outward day by day, new knowledge flooding in, the mastery of the mysteries beginning to come within his grasp. His days were so full that it did not bother him at all to pass his nights on a thin mat on the floor of a room crammed with ancient, acrid-smelling books. He needed only to close his eyes, and sleep would come up and seize him as though he had been drugged. The winter wind howled outside, and cold draughts broke through into his room, and sandroaches danced all around him, making sandroach music with their little scraping claws But nothing broke his sleep until dawn's first blast of light came through the library's uncovered window. Haliband was always awake, washed and dressed, when he emerged from his room. It was as if she did not sleep at all. In these early hours of the morning she would hold her consultations with her clients in the study, if she had any that day, or else retire to her laboratory and putter about with her mechanisms and her potions. He would breakfast alone, Halibant never touched food before noon, and set about his household chores, the dusting and scrubbing and all the rest. And then would come his morning lesson, and after that, until lunch, his time to prowl in the library. Often he and she took lunch at the same time, though she maintained silence throughout, and ignored him when he stole the occasional quick glance at her across the table from him. The afternoons were the worst part, "'when the private pupils came and he was forced to wander the streets. "'He begrudged them, whoever they were, the time they had with her, "'and he hated the grimy taverns and bleak gaming halls "'where he spent these winter days, "'when the weather was too grim to allow him to simply walk about. "'But then he would return to the flat, "'and if he found her there, which was not always the case, "'she would allow him an hour or so of free discourse about matters magical, "'not a lesson, but simply a conversation.' in which he brought up issues that fascinated or perplexed him, and she helped him toward an understanding of them. These were wonderful hours, during which Ganon Thidridge was constantly conscious not just of her knowledge of the arts, but of Haliban's physical presence, her strange, off-center beauty, the warmth of her body, the oddly pleasing fragrance of it. He kept himself in check, of course. But inwardly he imagined himself taking her in his arms, touching his lips to hers, running his fingertips down her lean, lithe back, drawing her down to his miserable thin mat on the library floor, and all the while some other part of his mind was concentrating on the technical arcana of sorcery that she was offering him. In the evenings she was usually out again. He had no idea where. And he studied until sleep overtook him, or, if his head was throbbing too fiercely with newly acquired knowledge, he would apply himself to the unending backlog of housekeeping tasks, gathering up what seemed like the dust of decades from under the furniture, beating the rugs, oiling the kitchen pots, tidying the books, scrubbing the stained porcelain of the sink, and on and on. All for her, for her, for love of her. It was a wonderful time. But then, in the second week, came the catastrophic moment when he awoke too early, went out into the hallway, and blundered upon her as she was heading into the bathroom for her morning bath. "'She was naked. "'He saw her from the rear first, "'the long, lean back and the narrow waist "'and the flat, almost boyish buttocks. "'And then, as a gasp of shock escaped his lips "'and she became aware that he was there, "'she turned and faced him squarely, "'staring at him as coolly and unconcernedly "'as though he were a cat or a piece of furniture. "'He was overwhelmed by the sight of her breasts, "'so full and close-set "'that they seemed almost out of proportion "'on such a slender frame.' and of her flaring, sharp-boned hips, and of the startlingly fire-hued triangle between them, tapering down to the slim thighs. She remained that way just long enough for the imprint of her nakedness to burn its way fiercely into Ganon Thidrich's soul, setting loose a conflagration that he knew it would be impossible for him to douse. Hastily he shut his eyes as though he had accidentally stared into the sun, and when he opened them again, a desperate moment later, she was gone and the bathroom door was closed. The last time Gannon Thidridge had experienced such an impact, he had been fourteen. The circumstances had been somewhat similar. Now, dizzied and dazed as a tremendous swirl of adolescent emotion roared through his adult mind, he braced himself against the hallway wall and gulped for breath like a drowning man. For two days, though neither of them referred to the incident at all, he remained in its grip he could hardly believe that something as trivial as a momentary glimpse of a naked woman, at his age, could affect him so deeply. But of course there were other factors, the instantaneous attraction to her that had afflicted him at the moment of meeting her, and their proximity in this little flat, where her bedroom door was only twenty paces from his, and the whole potent master-pupil entanglement that had given her such a powerful role in his lonely life here in the City of Sorcerers, he began to wonder whether she had worked some sorcery on him herself as a sort of amusement, capriciously casting a little lust spell over him so that she could watch him squirm, and then deliberately flaunting her nakedness at him that way. He doubted it, but then he knew very little about what she was really like. And perhaps, how could he say? There was some component of malice in her character, something in her that drew pleasure from tormenting a poor fish like Ganon Thidrich, who had been cast up on her shore. He doubted it, but he had encountered such women before, and the possibility was always there. He was making great progress in his studies. He had learned now how to summon minor demons, how to prepare tinctures that enhanced virility, how to employ the eyebrow of the sun, how to test for the purity of gold and silver by the laying on of hands, how to interpret weather omens, and much more. His head was swimming with his new knowledge. But also he remained dazzled by the curious sort of beauty that he saw in her, by the closeness in which they lived in the little flat, by the memory of that one luminous encounter in the dawn. And when, in the fourth week, it seemed to him that her usual coolness toward him was softening, she smiled at him once in a while now, she showed obvious delight at his growing skill in the art, she even asked him a thing or two about his life before coming to Tregoyne. He finally mistook diminished indifference for actual warmth and, at the end of one morning's lesson, abruptly blurted out a confession of his love for her. An ominous red glow appeared on her pale cheeks. Her dark eyes flashed tempestuously. "'Don't ruin everything,' she warned him. "'It is all going very well as it is. "'I advise you to forget that you ever said such a thing to me.' "'How can I? "'Thoughts of you possess me day and night. "'Control them, then.' I don't want to hear any more about them, and if you try to lay a finger on me, I'll turn you into a sandroach, believe me. He doubted that she really meant that, but he abided by her warning for the next eight days, not wanting to jeopardize the continuation of his course of studies. Then, in the course of carrying out an assignment she had given him in the casting of auguries, Gannon Thidrich inscribed her name and his in the proper places in the spell, inquired as to the likelihood of a satisfactory consummation of desire, and received what he understood to be a positive prognostication. This inflamed him so intensely with joy that when Halibant came into the room a moment later, Gannon Thidrich impulsively seized her and pulled her close to him, pressed his cheek against hers, and frantically fondled her from shoulder to thigh. She muttered six brief, harsh words of a spell unknown to him in his ear and bit his earlobe. In an instant, he found himself scrabbling around amidst gigantic dust grains on the floor. Jagged, glittering motes floated about him like planets in the void. His vision had become eerily precise down almost to the microscopic level, but all color had drained from the world. When he put his hand to his cheek in shock, he discovered it to be an insect's feathery claw, and the cheek itself was a hard thing of chitin. She had indeed transformed him into a sandroach. Numb, he considered his situation. From this perspective, he could no longer see her. She was somewhere miles above him in the upper reaches of the atmosphere. Nor could he make out the geography of the room, the familiar chairs and the couch, or anything else except the terrifyingly amplified details of the immensely small. Perhaps in another moment her foot would come down on him, and that would be that for Ganon yet he did not truly believe that he had become a sandroach. He had mastered enough sorcery by this time to understand that that was technically impossible, that one could not pack all the neurons and synapses, the total intelligence of a human mind, into the tiny compass of an insect's head. And all of those things were here with him inside the sandroach, his entire human personality, the hopes and fears and memories and fantasies "'of Ganon Thidrich of the Free City of Stee, "'who had come to Tregoyne to study sorcery "'and was a pupil of the woman v. Halibant. "'So this was all an illusion. "'He was not really a sandroach. "'She had merely made him believe that he was. "'He was certain of that. "'That certainty was all that preserved his sanity "'in those first appalling moments. "'Still, on an operational level, "'there was no effective difference "'between thinking you were a six-legged, chitin-covered creature one finger-joint in length "'and actually being such a creature. "'Either way, it was a horrifying condition. "'Gannon Thidrich could not speak out to protest against her treatment of him. "'He could not restore himself to human shape and height. "'He could not do anything at all except the things that Sandroaches did. "'The best he could manage was to scutter in his new, six-legged fashion "'to the safety to be found underneath the couch.' "'where he discovered other sandroaches already in residence. "'He glared at them balefully, warning them to keep their distance. "'But their only response was an incomprehensible twitching of their feelers. "'Whether that was a gesture of sympathy or one of animosity, he could not tell. The least you could have done for me, he thought, "'was to provide me with some way of communicating with the others of my kind, "'if this is to be my kind from now on. "'He had never known such terror and misery.' but the transformation was only temporary. Two hours later, it seemed like decades to him, Sandroach time, all of it spent hiding under the couch and contemplating how he was going to pursue the purposes of his life as an insect, Ganon Thidrich was swept by a nauseating burst of dizziness and a sense that he was exploding from the thorax outward, and then he found himself restored to his previous form, lying in a clumsy sprawl in the middle of the floor. Halibant was nowhere to be seen, Cautiously he rose and moved about the room, reawakening in himself the technique of two-legged locomotion, holding his outspread fingers up before his eyes for the delight of seeing fingers again, prodding his cheeks and arms and abdomen to confirm that he was once again a creature of flesh. He was. He felt chastened and immensely relieved, even grateful to her for having relented. They did not discuss the episode the next day, and all reverted to as it had been between them—distant, formal— a relationship of pure pedagogy and nothing more. He remained wary of her. When, now and then, his hand would brush against hers in the course of handling some piece of apparatus, he would pull it back as if he had touched a glowing coal. Spring now began to arrive in Tregoyne. The air was softer, the trees grew green. Gannon Thidrich's desire for his instructor did not subside. In truth, it grew more maddeningly acute with the warming of the season. "'but he permitted himself no expression of it. "'There were further occasions when he accidentally encountered her "'going to and fro, naked, in the hall in the earliest morning. "'His response each time was instantly to close his eyes and turn away, "'but her image lingered on his retinas and burrowed down into his brain. "'He could not help thinking that there was something intentional "'about these provocative episodes, something flirtatious even, "'but he was too frightened of her to act on that supposition.' "'a new form of obsession now came over him, "'that the visitors she received every afternoon while he was away "'were not private pupils at all, but a lover, rather, or perhaps several lovers. "'Since she took care not to have her afternoon visitors arrive until he was gone, "'he had no way of knowing whether this was so, "'and it plagued him terribly to think that others, in his absence, "'were caressing her lovely body and enjoying her passionate kisses "'while he was denied everything on pain of being turned into a sand-roach again.' But, of course, he did have a way of knowing what took place during those afternoons of hers. He had progressed far enough in his studies to have acquired some skill with a device known as the far-seeing bowl, which allows an adept to spy from a distance. Over the span of three days, he removed from Haliban's flat one of her bowls, a supply of the pink fluid that it required, and a pinch of the grayish activating powder. Also he helped himself to a small undergarment of Haliband's, its fragrance was a torment to him, from the laundry basket. These things he stored in a locker he rented in the nearby marketplace. On the fourth day, after giving himself a refresher course in the five-word spell that operated the bowl, he collected his apparatus from the locker, repaired to a tavern where he knew no one would intrude on him, set the bowl atop the garment, filled it with a pink fluid, sprinkled it with the activating powder, and uttered the five words. It occurred to him that he might see scenes now that would shatter him forever. No matter. He had to know. The surface of the fluid in the bowl rippled, stirred, cleared. The image of V. Halibant appeared. Gannon Thidrich caught his breath. A visitor was indeed with her. A young man. A boy, even. No more than twelve or fifteen years old. They sat chastely apart in the study. Together they pored over one of Halibant's books of sorcery. It was an utterly innocent hour. The second student came soon after, a short, squat fellow wearing coarse clothing of a provincial cut. For half an hour Halibant delivered what was probably a lecture, the bowl did not provide Gannon Thidrich with sound, while the pupil, constantly biting his lip, scribbled notes as quickly as he could. Then he left, and after a time was replaced by a sad, dreamy-looking fellow with long, shaggy hair, who had brought some sort of essay or thesis for Haliband to examine. She leafed quickly through it, frequently offering what were, no doubt, pungent comments. No lovers, then. Legitimate pupils, all three. Ganon Thidrich felt bitterly ashamed of having spied on her, and aghast at the possibility that she might have perceived, by means of some household surveillance spell of whose existence he knew nothing, that he had done so but she betrayed no sign of that when he returned to the flat. A week later, desperate once again, he purchased a love potion in the sorcerer's marketplace. Not a spell to free himself from desire, though he knew that's what he should be getting, but one that would deliver her into his arms. Halibant had sent him to the marketplace with a long list of professional supplies to buy for her. Such things as elecamp, golden rue, quicksilver, brimstone, goblin sugar, mastic, and theca ammoniaca. The last item on the list was multibar, and the same dealer he knew offered potions for the lovelorn. Rashly, Ganon Thidrich purchased one. He hid it among his bundles and tried to smuggle it into the flat, but Halibant, under the pretext of offering to help him unpack, went straight to the sack that contained it and pulled it forth. This was nothing that I requested, she said. True, he said, chagrined. Is it what I think it is? Hanging his head, he admitted that it was. She tossed it angrily aside. I'll be merciful and let myself believe that you bought this to use on someone else. But if I was the one you had in mind for it... No, never, liar, idiot. What can I do, Halibant? Love strikes like a thunderbolt. I don't remember advertising for a lover. Only for an apprentice, an assistant, a tenant... It's not my fault that I feel this way about you, nor mine, said Halibant. Put all such thoughts out of your mind if you want to continue here. Then, softening, obviously moved by the dumbly adoring way in which he was staring at her, she smiled and pulled him toward her and brushed his cheek lightly with her lips. Idiot, she said. Poor hopeless fool. But it seemed to him that she said it with affection matters stayed strictly business between them. He hung upon every word of her lessons as though his continued survival depended on committing every syllable of her teachings to memory, filled notebook after notebook with details of spells, talismans, conjurations and delusions, and spent endless hours rummaging through her books for amplifying detail, sometimes staying up far into the night to pursue some course of study that an incidental word or two from her had touched off. He was becoming so adept now that he was able to be of great service to her with her outside clientele, the perfect assistant, always knowing which devices or potions to bring her for the circumstances at hand, and he noticed that clients were coming to her more frequently now, too. He hoped that Haliband gave him at least a little credit for that, too. He was still aflame with yearning for her, of course. There was no reason for that to go away. But he tried to burn it off with heroic outpourings of energy in his role as her housekeeper. Before coming to Tregoyne, Ganon Thidrich had bothered himself no more about household work than any normal bachelor did, doing simply enough to fend off utter squalor, and not going beyond that. But he cared for her little flat as he had never cared for any dwelling of his own, polishing and dusting and sweeping and scrubbing, until the place took on an astonishing glow of charm and comfort. Even the Sandroaches were intimidated by his work, and fled to some other apartment. It was his goal to exhaust himself so thoroughly between the intensity of his studies and the intensity of his housework that he would have no shred of vitality left over for further lustful fantasies. This did not prove to be so. Often, curling up on his mat at night after a day of virtually unending toil, he would be assailed by dazzling visions of V. Halibant entering his weary mind like an intruding incubus, capering wantonly in his throbbing brain, gesturing lewdly to him, beckoning, offering herself, and Ganon Thidrich would lie there sobbing, soaked in sweat, praying to every demon whose invocations he knew that he be spared such agonizing visitations. The pain became so great that he thought of seeking another teacher. He thought occasionally of suicide, too, for he knew that this was the great love of his life, doomed never to be fulfilled, and that if he went away from Halibant, he was destined to roam forever celibate through the vastness of the world. Finding all other women unsatisfactory after her. Some segment of his mind recognized this to be puerile romantic nonsense, but he was not able to make that the dominant segment. And he began to fear that he might actually be capable of taking his own life in some feverish attack of nonsensical frustration. The worst of it was that she had become intermittently quite friendly toward him by this time, giving him, intentionally or otherwise, "'encouragement that he had become too timid to accept as genuine. "'Perhaps his pathetic gesture of buying that love potion "'had touched something in her spirit. "'She smiled at him frequently now, even winked, "'or poked him playfully in the shoulder with a finger "'to underscore some point in her lesson. "'She was shockingly casual sometimes about how she dressed, "'often choosing revealingly flimsy gowns "'that drove him into paroxysms of throttled desire.' And yet, at other times, she was as cold and aloof as she had been at the beginning, criticizing him cruelly when he bungled a spell or spilled an alembic, skewering him with icy glances when he said something that struck her as foolish, reminding him over and over that he was still just a blundering novice who had years to go before he attained anything like the threshold of mastery. So there were always limits. He was her prisoner. She could touch him whenever she chose, but he feared becoming a sand-roach again, should he touch her, even accidentally. She could smile and wink at him, but he dared not do the same. In no way did she grant him any substantial status. When he asked her to instruct him in the great spell known as the sublime Arcanum, which held the key to many gates, her reply was simply, That is not something for fools to play with. There was one truly miraculous day when, after he had recited an intricate series of spells with complete accuracy and had brought off one of the most difficult effects she had ever asked him to attempt, she seized him in a sudden joyful congratulatory embrace and levitated them both to the rafters of the study. There they hovered face to face, bosom against bosom, her eyes flashing jubilantly before him. That was wonderful, she cried. How marvelously you did that! How proud I am of you! This is it, he thought, the delirious moment of surrender at last, and slipped his hand between their bodies to clasp her firm round breast, and pressed his lips against hers, and drove his tongue deep into her mouth. Instantly she voided the spell of levitation and sent him crashing miserably to the floor, where he landed in a crumbled heap with his left leg folded up beneath him in a way that sent the fiercest pain through his entire body. She floated gently down beside him. "'You will always be an idiot,' she said, and spat, and strode out of the room. "'Gannon Thidridge was determined now to put an end to his life. "'He understood completely that to do such a thing would be a preposterous overreaction to his situation, "'but he was determined not to allow mere rationality to have a voice in the decision. "'His existence had become unbearable, "'and he saw no other way of winning his freedom from this impossible woman.' He brooded for days about how to go about it, whether to swallow some potion from her storeroom, or to split himself open with one of the kitchen knives, or simply to fling himself from the study window. But all of these seemed disagreeable to him on the aesthetic level, and fraught with drawbacks besides. Mainly what troubled him was the possibility that he might not fully succeed in his aim with any of them, which seemed even worse than succeeding would be. In the end, he decided to cast himself into the dark, turbulent river that ran past the edge of West Tregoyne on its northern flank. He had often explored it, now that winter was over, in the course of his afternoon walks. It was wide and probably fairly deep. Its flow during this period of springtime spate was rapid, and an examination of a map revealed that it would carry his body northward and westward into the grim, uninhabited lands that sloped toward the distant sea. Since he was unable to swim... One did not swim in the gigantic river Stee of his native city, whose swift current swept everything and everyone willy-nilly downstream along the mighty slopes of Castle Mount. and Thidrich supposed that he would sink quickly and could expect a relatively painless death. Just to be certain, he borrowed a rope from Haliband's storeroom to tie around his legs before he threw himself in. Slinging it over his shoulder, he set out along the footpath that bordered the river's course, searching for a likely place from which jump the day was warm the air sweet the new leaves yellowish green on every tree springtime at its finest what better season for saying farewell to the world he came to an overlook where no one else seemed to be around knotted the rope around his ankles and without a moment's pause for regret sentimental thoughts or final statements of any sort hurled himself down headlong into the water it was colder than he expected it to be even on this mild day His plummeting body cut sharply below the surface, so that his mouth and nostrils filled with water, and he felt himself in the imminent presence of death. But then the natural buoyancy of the body asserted itself, and despite his wishes, Ganon Thidrich turned upward again, breaching the surface, emerging into the air, spluttering and gagging. An instant later he heard a splashing sound close beside him, and realized that someone else had jumped in. A would-be rescuer, perhaps. "'Lunatic! Moron! What do you think you're doing?' He knew that voice, of course. Apparently, V. Haliband had followed him as he made his doleful way along the river bank, and was determined not to let him die. That realization filled him with a confused mixture of ecstasy and fury. She was bobbing beside him. She caught him by the shoulder, spun him around to face her. There was a kind of madness in her eyes, Gen and Thidrich thought. The woman leaned close... And in a tone of voice that stung like vitriol she said Yaho ariaha, Ahu Ariha Bakaks Yananen Fatlat Ganon Thidrich felt a sense of sudden forward movement and became aware that he was swimming. Actually swimming, moving downstream with powerful strokes of his entire body. Of course, that was impossible. Not only were his legs tied together, but he had no idea of how to swim. And yet he was definitely in motion. He could see the riverbank changing from moment to moment, the trees lining the footpath traveling upstream as he went the other way. There was a river otter swimming beside him, a smooth, sleek, beautiful creature, graceful and sinuous and strong. It took Gen and Thidrich another moment to realize that the animal was V. Halibant, and that in fact he was an otter also. "'that she had worked a spell on them both when she jumped in beside them, "'and had turned them into a pair of magnificent aquatic beasts. "'His legs were gone. "'He had only flippers down there now, culminating in small webbed feet. "'And gone, too, was the rope which he had hobbled himself with. "'And he could swim. He could swim like an otter. "'Ask no questions,' Gannon Thidrich told himself. "'Swim! Swim!' "'Side by side they swam for what must have been miles.' spurting along splendidly on the breast of the current. He had never known such joy. As a human, he would have drowned long ago. But as an otter, he was a superb swimmer, tireless, wondrously strong. And with Haliband next to him, he was willing to swim forever, to the sea itself even. Head down, nose foremost, narrow body fully extended, he drilled his way through the water like some animate projectile. And the otter who had been V. Haliband kept pace with him as he moved along. Time passed and he lost all sense of who or what he was, or where or what he was doing. He even ceased to perceive the presence of his companion. His universe was only motion, constant forward motion. He was truly a river otter now, nothing but a river otter, joyously hurling himself through the cosmos. But then his otter senses detected a sound to his left that no otter would be concerned with, and whatever was still human in him registered the fact that it was a cry of panic. "'a sharp little gasp of fear, coming from a member of his former species. "'He pivoted to look and saw that V. Haliband had reverted to human form "'and was thrashing about in what seemed to be the last stages of exhaustion. "'Her arms beat the air, her head tossed wildly, her eyes were rolled back in her head. "'She was trying to make her way to the river bank, "'but she did not appear to have the strength to do it. "'Gannon Thidrich understood that in his jubilant onward progress, He had led her too far down the river, pulling her along beyond her endurance, that as an otter he was far stronger than she, and by following him she had exceeded her otter abilities and could go no farther. Perhaps she was in danger of drowning, even. Could an otter drown? But she was no longer an otter. He knew that he had to get her ashore. He swam to her side and pushed futilely against her with his river otter nose, trying in vain to clasp her with the tiny otter flippers that had replaced his arms. Her eyes fluttered open and she stared into his, and smiled, and spoke two words, the counterspell, and Ganon Thidrich discovered that he too was in human form again. They were both naked. He found that they were close enough now to the shore that his feet were able to touch the bottom. Slipping his arm around her, just below her breasts, he tugged her along, steadily, easily, toward the nearby riverbank. He scrambled ashore, pulling her with him and they dropped down, gasping for breath at the river's edge under the warm spring sunshine. They were far out of town, he realized, all alone in the empty but not desolate countryside. The bank was soft with mosses. Gannon Thidrit recovered his breath almost at once. Halibant took longer, but before long she too was breathing normally. Her face was flushed and mottled with signs of strain, though, and she was biting down on her lip as though trying to hold something back something which Gannon Thidridge understood, a moment later, to be tears. Abruptly, she was furiously sobbing. He held her, tried to comfort her, but she shook him off. She would not or could not look at him. To be so weak, she muttered, I was going under. I almost drowned. And to have you see it, you, you! So she was angry with herself for having shown herself at least in this, to be inferior to him. That was ridiculous, he thought. She might be a master sorcerer, and he only a novice, yes. But he was a man, nevertheless, and she a woman. And men tended to be physically stronger than women, on the average. And probably that was true among otters, too. If she had displayed weakness during their wild swim, it was a forgivable weakness, which only exacerbated his love for her. He murmured words of comfort to her, and was so bold to put his arm around her shoulders. And then suddenly, astonishingly, everything changed. She pressed her bare body against his. She clung to him. She sought his lips with a hunger that was almost frightening. She opened her legs to him. She opened everything to him. She drew him down into her body and her soul. Afterward, when it seemed appropriate to return to the city... "'It was necessary to call on her resources of sorcery once more. "'They were both naked and many miles downstream from where they needed to be. "'She seemed not to want to risk returning to the otter form again. "'But there were other spells of transportation at her command. "'And she used one that brought them instantly back to West Tregoyne, "'where their clothing and even the rope with which Ganon Thidrich had bound himself "'were lying in damp heaps near the place where he had thrown himself into the river.' They dressed in silence, and in silence they made their way, walking several feet apart, back to her flat. He had no idea what would happen now. Already she appeared to be retreating behind that wall of untouchability that had surrounded her since the beginning. What had taken place between them on the river bank was irreversible, but it would not transform their strange relationship unless she permitted it to, Gannon Thidrich knew. "'and he wondered whether she would. "'He did not intend to make any new aggressive moves "'without some sort of guidance from her. "'And indeed it appeared that she intended to pretend "'that nothing had occurred at all. "'Neither his absurd suicide attempt, "'nor her foiling of it by following him to the river "'and turning them into otters, "'nor the frenzied, frenetic, almost insane coupling "'that had been the unexpected climax of their long swim. "'All was back to normal between them "'as soon as they were at the flat. "'She was the master,' He was the drudge, they slept in their separate rooms, and when, during the following day's lesson, he bungled a spell, as even now he still sometimes did, she berated him with the usual cruel, cutting way that was the verbal equivalent of transforming him once again into a sandroach. What, then, was he left with? The taste of her on his lips, the sound of her passionate outcries in his ears, the feel of the firm, ripe swells of her breasts against the palms of his hands— On occasions over the next few days, though, he caught sight of her studying him surreptitiously out of the corner of her eye, and he was the recipient of a few not-so-surreptitious smiles that struck him as having a genuine warmth in them, and when he ventured a smile of his own in her direction, it was met with another smile instead of a scowl. But he hesitated to try any sort of follow-up maneuver. Matters still struck him as too precariously balanced between them. Then, a week later, during their morning lesson, she said briskly, "'Take down these words. "'Psykerba, Enfnun, Orgogogogoniotrian, forby. "'Do you recognize them?' "'No,' said Ganon Thidrich, baffled. "'They are the opening incantation of the spell known as the sublime Arcanum,' said Halibant. "'A thrill rocketed down his spine. "'The sublime Arcanum at last!' so she had decided to trust him with the Master Spell, finally, the great opener of so many gates. She no longer thought of him as a fool who could not be permitted knowledge of it. It was a good sign, he thought. Something was changing. Perhaps she was still trying to pretend, even now, that none of it had ever happened, the event by the riverbank. But it had, it had, and it was having its effect on her, however hard she might be battling against it and he knew now that he would go on searching, forever if necessary, for the key that would unlock her a second time.
2: Having a crush on one's teacher can be an awkward experience, especially when said instructor is a master mage. Even access to vast cosmic power is no match for the mysteries of the heart. This lad seems to have learned a great deal in some regards, but, like many a young fool in love, he remains clueless in others. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from you, our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast, or other podcatchers, so that we can build our listenership even more and keep the stories flowing. Please consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page so that we can keep the podcasts up and running. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 international license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be turned into cockroaches, indefinitely. I'm off to go and action the day. May yours be as interesting and exciting as mine is bound to be. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com thank you for listening
0: ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door